It is a great joy to be here with you um, this morning. I've, uh, I've heard um, a lot about uh, Nick um, over the last uh, year or so from mutual friends that we have, and it's been wonderful to find out more about Covenant uh, Fellowship Church and all that God is doing here through you and um, among you and um, it's a joy to be here. Um, as Nick said, a few things about me. Um, I am the, the senior pastor of Christ Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Houston, Texas, which is the longest name of any Presbyterian church ever, anywhere. Um, and so, but uh, I, I miss, miss them. It's been a while since I've been with them. And uh, there's actually at least one of you um, here in this church who knows several folks back home, and they have not heard me preach in at least a month because I had two trips, one to Israel with some college students, and then this trip, which started about three weeks ago. And so I've been visiting and teaching and preaching other places, but not back home. And um, so don't tell them that I'm preaching today here, okay, because they, um, they'll, they'll wish I was back home. But I'm glad I'm here um, it is, uh, my wife, Alicia, is here with me. Um, we, we have four children. We have uh, three daughters and one son. Uh, we have a, a 15-year-old daughter, Lillian, a 13-year-old daughter, Savannah, an 11-year-old son, Richard Jr., and then we have our youngest daughter, Queen Elizabeth, and uh, she is a big personality. We, we greatly, greatly miss, greatly miss them. Uh, but most importantly, I am a sinner uh, saved by Christ and his grace, and it is a great joy and honor to, to be here with you and to open God's word uh, with you. And so we'll be looking at Psalm 13, and so I invite you to open up your copies of God's word to, to Psalm 13, and I know that, that you've not been in the Psalms, you've been in, in Romans in the morning and other places in the evening, and so let me just say a word about Psalm 13, before I read the text to us, and you'll notice that Psalm 13, like many psalms, has a title, and the title in, in the smaller print just before verse 1 is actually part of the Hebrew text, and for Psalm 13, that title is, To the Choir Master, a, a Psalm of David, and so just by way of introduction to Psalm 13, uh, that tells us something about this psalm. One, we know the author is David, and that David is King David, and uh, we, we, we're not given the specifics around the, the time in his life when, when this took place, but, but David wrote this. I'm sure as you hear Psalm 13, even as we move through it together during the sermon, you may, if you're familiar with David's life from First and Second Samuel, then you may even think of multiple times in his life when he could have been prompted by the Spirit to, to write this, this psalm. But King David is the author. And, but then you also see that it's to the choir master, which tells us that Psalm 13 is meant to be sung by God's people. That Psalm 13 is not merely telling us about something that David felt at one time in his life. That he felt this way, and so he prayed this way to God. He felt this way, and so he cried out to God. It's, this psalm is, is to the choir master. This psalm is, is for you, the people of God. And to help give, give words to, to your prayers, to our prayers, 
and to, to our cries and to our songs. Perhaps during times whenever we, we don't know what we ought to pray. We don't know what we ought to cry out. But what we do see in, in, in Psalm 13, it's a short psalm. It only has six verses. And the, the, the verses really outline nicely because verses 1 and 2 kind of go together. And then verses 3 and 4, then verses 5 and 6. And what we see in the progression from verse 1 to verse 6 in Psalm 13 is, is really like climbing a mountain. Climbing a mountain. Ascending a mountain. And the, to, to lifting our gaze all the while. And see, the, the psalm begins down in the depths of waiting and lament and even desperation. And we see that beginning in verses 1 and 2. And then we begin to ascend, slowly but surely ascend to, to a vantage point with our gaze is lifted. It's a vantage point of confidence and hope and trust and, and assurance. You know, John, John Calvin called the book of Psalms an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. An anatomy of all the parts of the soul, and, and, and I think that's wonderful. And he said that because you can find every, every emotion that the human heart can experience somewhere in the Psalms. If, if you can experience it, if you can name it, it's going to be here in the Psalms, including Life's griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, joys, hopes, cares, perplexities, uncertainties. You name it, it's in the Psalms. And what we're going to hear, especially in verses 1 and 2, this refrain of this cry, this question. How long, O Lord? See, Psalm 13 is really a gift to God's people. For when we can only think to cry out, how long, O Lord? So with all that said, hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, life-giving word. Psalm 13. To the choir master, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foe rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And it's absolutely true. And it's given to us in love for our good. And so if, if you're someone who benefits from a sermon outline, then uh, we have an outline this morning, three headings, waiting in anguish, praying in desperation, and then trusting in the Lord. Waiting in anguish, praying in desperation, trusting in the Lord. Waiting, praying, trusting. Will you go with me to the Lord in prayer now as we pray for this time together? Father, we thank you for your word. That is absolutely true. That is given to us in love for our good. We ask that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word. 
Please, Father, enable us to continue worshiping you in spirit and in truth. And we ask that you would teach us and correct us and rebuke us, train us in righteousness, that we, your people, may be complete and equipped for every good work. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first heading, waiting, waiting in in anguish. If you look with me at verses 1 and 2, I'm going to read them to you again, but notice this this, uh, four, four times that David repeats this same question. How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? Four times. Uh, Charles Spurgeon uh, referred to Psalm 13 as the howling psalm because he just, we keep hearing how long over and over again. And this, this prayer, this cry, almost seems as if David is, is howling at the Lord. Verse 1 says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? And as you hear that, as you hear David's howling in this prayer, on the one hand, I want to ask you, have you ever been there? Have you ever felt that way? But on the other hand, I know that I don't have to, that, that in a room this size, that there's, there's no doubt in my mind that, that, that many of us ha- have been there and we've experienced that, and, and, even, and even it's likely that some of us are there today. When our prayer, how long, O Lord, essentially turns into us howling and crying out in anguish for God to answer, for his answer, for his mercy, for his grace, for some form of relief, for some indicator that, that God is there and he cares and he hears. I bet many of us have been there. I'm even willing to bet some of us are even there right now. And Psalm 13 is for you. How long, O oh Lord? You see, how long, O oh Lord, is the cry of someone who has walked with more pain and disappointment and heartache and failure and sickness and sadness than they thought they could ever bear? And as we move our way through Psalm 13, <coughs> excuse me, we see this pain, anguish, and distress really has multiple aspects. I see at least three in the first two verses. Multiple aspects. The first being spiritual. How long will God forget me? How long will God hide his face from me? But then second, we see there's an internal or personal aspect of this. David refers to sorrow in his heart. And then third, we see there's a circumstantial aspect. That David's case involves enemies. And so if you think about these in turn, first, there's the spiritual aspect to it. It has to do with distress related to God. That David cries out in verse 1, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Now, forget here does not mean to no longer remember me, but rather David is referring to God appearing to not answer, appearing to not answer prayer rather than a loss of memory. See, David is not accusing God of having amnesia. That as we look at the Bible, when we read that God remembers his people, it most often means that that God acts on their behalf in accord with his word and his promises and, and what he remembers. 
And then whenever we read in the Bible um, about God's people feeling forgotten by God, it means that he's not appearing to come to their aid. And therefore it seems or it appears as if God has abandoned them. That God appears to be silent. And then David adds in verse 1 the word forever. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Meaning, will this ever change? Or put another way, verse 1 is really asking, how long will you continue to forget me? And then David says, how long will you hide your face from me? How long will you hide your face from me? Now think about that phrase, that expression, hide your face from me. It seems like this is a reference, this reference to God hiding his face is a, it's a reversal of the well-known ironic blessing from number six. A blessing that's often used as a benediction. We read in number six, verses 24 to 26, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. See, the Lord's face shining on someone, shining on his people, signifies the Lord is graciously blessing them and and showing them his favor. But if we look back to Psalm 13, David doesn't feel any of that. He doesn't feel like he's experiencing any of that, so he cries out, how long will you hide your face from me? Put another way, how long will you hide your favor from me? He says, how long, O Lord? Have you been there before? Are you there now? But second, we see a dimension of David's anguish that it's personal, that it's inward. And so you see in verse 2, How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? There's so much anguish there. See, the first part of verse 2, I think, refers to David's many attempts, his many futile and failed attempts, to figure this out on his own, to think his way out of this, to fix this situation. But he can't. That he's wrestled with his own thoughts over and over and over again, but he simply can't think his way out of this. Then you look at the second sentence of verse 2, and God does not appear to be answering David. So David keeps trying to think his way out of this difficulty, but he can't. Therefore, David has sorrow in his heart, all the day, or daily, or all the time. That plan after plan, attempt after attempt fails, and David has sorrow in his heart all the day. And so he cries out, how long, O Lord? But the third dimension of David's anguish is that there are circumstances, and in David's case, there are difficult people, literal enemies that he points to. You see in verse 2, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? And we're not given indication of who David's specific enemy here is, although the the context seems like it could be uh, some form of betrayal, some form of insurrection, some other power struggle. It could be referring to King Saul warring against David. It could be referring to David's own son Absalom and the, the rebellion that he leads against his father that results in a civil war. But even if you don't have people in your life that you would label as enemies, I think that we can all relate to the distress and the problems caused by difficult people and difficult circumstances. 
I think we know, we know what difficult people are like, don't we? I'm guessing you do, okay, and I'll say this. If you, if you don't know any difficult people, that's probably because you are a difficult person. I'm just, that's just for free. You can think, think about that, okay? Um, David cries out, how long, O Lord? It's the cry of someone who feels abandoned by God, at least at some level, and they're essentially issuing their complaint that God does not appear to be answering their prayers, that God seems distant, that their prayers feel like they keep hitting the ceiling and bouncing back down. So David's crying out, God, will it be this way forever? Will this ever end? Will things ever change, ever get better? You know, will the chronic pain ever end? Will my back stop hurting? Will the migraines go away? Will this next treatment finally be the one that works? Will there ever be peace in my family? Reconciliation and healing in my marriage with my siblings, in my relationships with my children. You know, will, will the difficulty at work in my career, will, will it ever get better? Will it always be this toxic? See, how long, O oh Lord, is the cry of someone who has walked with more pain, disappointment, heartache, uncertainty, sickness, sadness, than they thought they could ever bear? And yet, I don't want you to miss that this is where David is in verses 1 and 2. But we have Psalm 13 because that means even though David is there, and this is how he feels, he hasn't stopped praying. He hasn't stopped crying out to the Lord. And that's the second heading we were looked at, waiting in anguish. Now, secondly, praying in desperation. And look at this prayer in verse 3. He says, consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Consider and answer me. The, the late pastor James Montgomery Boyce said this, David, whether by training, habit, or sheer discipline, called upon the name of the Lord. Learn from David at this point. In times of victory, call upon God, praise him. In times of defeat, call upon God, ask for help. In times of temptation, call upon God, seek deliverance. In the dark night of the soul, call upon God. He is our hope even when we are unaware of his presence. You see, dear Christians, from the youngest here, hearing my voice, to the most mature among us, call upon the Lord in prayer. Even if you don't know what to pray, pray something. You know the Lord's prayer, begin to recite that back to the Lord. Find it in Matthew 6, begin to read it. But pray and keep praying that you may at times feel like your prayers aren't leaving the room. They're hitting the ceiling, bouncing right back down. But you keep praying and be honest with God. Be honest with him. He can handle your honesty. He wants it. Now look at the beginning of verse 3 to see what David prays. He says, consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. See, first David says to God, 
consider me, or literally, look at me. The David is saying, God, please look at me. Please look closely at me. Please look closely at my situation. Please consider and look closely at my problem. But obviously, God doesn't have to look closely at something to be able to see it. Right? God knows it already. He knows it and he sees it, understands it clearly and thoroughly. Therefore, in Psalm 13, you see what David's doing. He, he feels abandoned by God, but he's not settling for that feeling of abandonment. And why not? David feels this way, but David knows this is not who his God is. That his God is not a distant, forgetful God. David knows that his God is always near to his people. David knows that, that his God knows his people intimately. Subjectively, David feels forgotten by God. Objectively, David knows it's impossible for God to not already and thoroughly and comprehensively know every detail concerning David, even his thoughts and situation. So put another way, David does genuinely feel forgotten by God. However, David's feelings are not objectively accurate. He really does feel this way, but the way he feels is not reality. That God does not need to be refocused on David and his David situation. You see, it's, it's, God is not like us in the way that we can get distracted. You know, I can be having a conversation with one of my four children. We're having a great conversation and then it seems like there's a, a break in the conversation. Maybe they turn and look at something else. They turn away. I pick up my phone. Next thing I know, Alicia is shaking me to kind of snap me out of that email or that text because the, my child has come back and started talking to me again. Right, and I need to put it down, okay, and not be distracted. But God is not like that. God is never distracted from his knowledge of you his care for you, and his concern for you. I mean, listen to what we read in Psalm 139. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. See, God understands what David is feeling and experiencing. And he knows what David means whenever he prays, Lord, come close and look and consider my plight. And dear Christian, the same is true for you. So David then cries out, answer me, O Lord. And if you look at your Bible text, you may notice that word Lord has a different type of font that all of the letters L, O, R, and D are all capitalized. That's telling us that that word for Lord is the word Yahweh, which is God's personal and covenant name. And that's the name that David uses for God all throughout Psalm 13. He uses it in verse 1, in verse 3, and verse 6. 
And the point here is that David cries out to Yahweh to answer him. He says, my covenant-making and my covenant-keeping God, please answer me. Please respond to me. I have nowhere else to go. You are my God, so please answer me. Respond. And then we see in verse 3, David prays, Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Put simply, what David is saying is that, God, I feel like if you don't help me, if you don't encourage me, if you don't strengthen me, I'm going to die. I feel like I have nowhere else to go. And then look at all of verses 3 and 4 together. He says, consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Commentator Dr. Alan Ross says this about David's mention of his enemies in verse 4. The point is that David is a faithful believer in the Lord. The triumph of his enemies over him would be held by them as a triumph over David and his faith. David's appeal is that if God did not want them to rejoice, then God would have to answer the prayer. You see, here in verses 3 and 4, David continues to pray through his desperation, through his feeling of being abandoned by the Lord. And that's one of the most fascinating aspects of Psalm 13. Is that David is so honest about his feelings. And he feels abandoned by God. And he's honest about those feelings. And at the same time, David is logical. And he's rational about the reasons that he gives for why God should answer his prayer. So Pastor Del Ralph Davis says, do you see the combination of his feelings and of his, of his rational thinking. Do you see the combination of verses 1 and 2? There is especially the feeling, how David feels. In verses 3 and 4, there's the thinking. He's thinking this through about who God is. In the former, there's emotion. In the latter, there's reasoning. In verses 1 and 2, the affections are laid bare. In verses 3 and 4, the arguments are pressed. Neither either or, but both and. And the Psalm 13 implies that especially in prayer, that you must hold both emotion and reason together. And in a true knowledge of God, they combine. At the throne of grace, tears fall from your eyes and arguments rise from your lips. So the question, friends, is, is this how you pray? On the one hand, do you pray with honesty and transparency? Well, you should and you can. Right? God can handle your honesty. But also, on the other hand, do your prayers reflect a true knowledge of God? Do your prayers reflect the truth of God's word? It's, it's a, wonderful way to, a wonderful way to learn to deepen your prayer life is to pick one psalm a day. And read it and then, and then pray it line by line back to God. Or, or perhaps to pick one of Paul's prayers in his epistles. I know you're going through Romans in the morning. Pick one of Paul's prayers. Read it back to God. Pray through it line by line. 
And we want to be honest with God in prayer, and we need to be praying objective truth and even reminding ourselves of objective truth from God's word as we pray. And so, so far we've seen David waiting in anguish, praying in desperation. Here's the third and final heading, trusting in the Lord. And remember, there's this image of of Psalm 13 from verse 1 to verse 6 of climbing a mountain, ascending to a better vantage point, of lifting our gaze above these present circumstances and really seeing the Lord in his glory for, for who he is. So at the beginning of the psalm in verse 1, he cry, David cries out, How long, O Lord? But then we read in verse 5, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. That Hebrew word translated steadfast love is the Hebrew word hesed. And hesed is a very important Bible word. I, I certainly can't do it justice here in this short amount of time, but it's, it's a covenant word. And it refers to God's unwavering faithfulness to all his covenant promises to his people. That Hesed expresses the steadfast love and faithfulness of a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God who is always faithful to his people. Not because they're faithful, but because he is. Not because they are worthy, but because he is. Not because they are perfect, but because he is. See, Hesed is the steadfast and covenant love of God, which pledges to never let go of us, never let go of God's people, never let go of you. But Hesed assures us that God will bring all of his people all of the way home. So look again at verse 5. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. That the Hebrew grammar communicates, I have trusted and continue to trust. That David is resting in and holding fast to the promise of God's steadfast love towards him and all of God's people, which will not fail because of God's very character. You see, sometimes this is your only hope. Things are difficult all around you. You feel, you feel one way you feel abandoned by God that surely God is hiding his face from you he has forgotten you sometimes your only hope is simply what God has said about himself and what God has said that he will do in his word which suggests to us how incredibly important it is for us to have a solid grasp on the doctrine of God The doctrine of God is so important for the Christian life. You see, David knew his God. But what about you? Do you know your God? Do you know his character? Do you know his attributes? Do you know his promises for you and for your family? Which are found in his word. Do you know your God? You know, on the one hand... It takes the whole Bible to tell us who God is, but a great summary of what the Bible says about God is, I think, something you've apparently covered in your Thursday night study of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. A great summary of what the Bible teaches about who God is is the Shorter Catechism question answer number four. The question asks, what is God? And the answer is, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable, in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. 
that God is infinite, eternal, unchangeable in all of the things, that list of things that follow. He's infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his wisdom. And infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his power, in his holiness. No matter what your, your circumstances are, your God is infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his justice. He's infinite, eternal, unchangeable always in his goodness and in his truth. You see, this is a big God who's infinite, eternal, unchangeable. It's a God who's big enough to handle all of your difficulties and your fears and your adversaries and your distresses and your sin. And so run to him, trust in him, keep turning back to him in repentance when you sin. Keep crying out for the grace that Christ has purchased for you with his life, death, and resurrection. Cry out to him in prayer and be assured that he will always hear the prayers of his people. You see, in a world that's stained and marred by sin and full of difficult people in difficult circumstances, there's no other source of confidence than in our infinite, eternal, unchangeable God. As Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner puts it, so the psalmist entrusts himself to this pledged love and turns his attention not to the quality of his faith, but to its object and its outcome, which he has every intention of enjoying. And so I hope that you won't miss that. You see, the lesson from Psalm 13 is not, okay, whenever you feel forgotten by God, you need to somehow muster up a better quality of faith. That, that's not the point. The point here is that our faith, no matter how strong or no matter how weak, no matter how robust or no matter how fragile, must be in the right object, in the right one, in Yahweh, in our covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. You see, here in Psalm 13, David asks, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? So let me ask you, dear Christian, how do you know that your God will never, ever forget you? Think about that. You do know this. You can know this. How do you know? You see, for us and where we are in the history of redemption, we know that the second person of the Trinity, the eternal divine son of God, took on flesh and he dwelt among us. He lived the perfect righteous life that we have all failed to live. He lived that life for us. And he died on the cross as our atoning sacrifice to pay for our sin completely. And he rose from the grave on that first Easter morning, not only to prove that all of this is true, but also so that we would know that there's real resurrection power that, that has raised us from our spiritual death to, to new life in Christ. And that we are now given new hearts, a new birth. We've been made new creations. We now have resurrection power to walk in newness of life. That Christ did all of this. And don't forget what he said in John chapter 10, verses 28 and 29. Speaking of you and of me, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. 
My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. You see, Christ can never forget you. He can never forget you. He won't allow anyone to even take you out of his hand. You're never going to slip out of his hand. He can never forget you. And so the point here is that our faith, no matter how strong or how weak, must be in the right one. It must be in Christ. He is the Savior we need. He'll never forget us or abandon us or let us out of his hand. As Pastor Sinclair Ferguson puts it, even the weakest Christian still gets the same strong Christ. And so listen again to how Psalm 13 ends. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. So listen to verse 6 again. David's circumstances and his enemies, they're still the same. David still feels one way. He feels abandoned by God. He feels forgotten by God. But David says, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Put another way, things are still just as hard, just as impossible. But David is certain that he will one day have such a song to sing whenever he looks back on all that God has done for him. And so, dear Christian, what about you? What will you do when you find yourself asking, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Do you know what you should do? You should do exactly what you're doing right now. You should join the people of God in the worship of God, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, and be nourished and be strengthened by God's Word and His Spirit and His people. You should put yourself under the ordinary means of grace over and over again, Lord's Day after Lord's Day. See, it's in the daily and the weekly reading, studying, teaching, preaching of God's Word. It's in the Scripture-soaked prayers and experiencing the sacraments faithfully explained and administered that you'll be reminded of God's steadfast love for you in Christ. And so let me end with one last scripture reading from Romans chapter 8, from the very end of the chapter, beginning in verse 31. Paul reminds us, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the, the precious promises that we have. But no matter how we feel,
no matter what our experience is, that we know, Father, that you are not and that you cannot ever forget us or abandon us. You won't, you can't. You hold us in your hand. We are your people. And you promise to bring all of us all the way home. We ask, thank you for this, Father. Impress these truths upon our hearts, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.